we will then begin and continue our series in the book of Daniel, chapter 8, uh, verses 1 through 26. And we're not going to read all of it just because it's a lot to read. Uh, but we'll read all the way up until uh, verse 14. If you can follow me or have your Bibles open to Daniel chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. Uh, I've entitled this message, Daniel's Second Vision, uh, Our God is Greater. Uh, let's begin by reading God's Word from Daniel chapter 8. This is the reading of God's Holy Word. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at first, at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns. And both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue him, a rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering Behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven." Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and toward the glorious land. It, it grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot, and he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and morning, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. And then follows that is the interpretation of this vision and dream. And we will get into that in this message. But join with me as we pray uh, and ask the Spirit to work in our hearts for clarity and also conviction as we live 
uh, in this world of uh, the Word of God. We thank you, O Lord, as we come before you in this, in these amazing chapters of Daniel. Daniel, we just we don't always understand what's going on and what's being said. As we talked about last week, there's apocalyptic literature going on, and sometimes it's not easy to understand how to read apocalyptic literature. But I do pray that you would work with me in my endeavor towards making it more clear and applying this then to our daily lives as to how to understand that our God is greater. Be with us now as we get into and dive into this most precious word of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. Again, I've entitled this message, Daniel's Second Vision, Our God is Greater. And I've led with uh, uh, this type of illustration to you before. Uh, But again, if you've ever remembered uh, those choose-your-own-adventure books, uh, I don't know if they have them now, but uh, when I was a little child, um, you know, you would kind of understand what choose your adventure would entail. And it, it, you would, it, kind of, it kind of speaks to me about these end times and what it does to us. You know? uh, I'm very fortunate. I have a son who, who really loves to read, and so he actually does read, I think, although uh, maybe I, I should uh, really kind of test him on his reading. Um, because I used to tell my mom, like I've told you before, that I read eight books in a week. Because I would take those choose-your-own-adventure books, look at the conclusion, go back to the beginning, and find the shortest way to the end so that I could have said I read eight books in a week. Now, that's how so many of us want to look at books like this, Daniel and Revelation, apocalyptic literature. Okay? We want to know the end so badly that we tend to confirmation bias our way towards that end. How many pastors have said to you, or you've heard, the end is near, prepare yourself, the end is near. Of course, this is not a new trend. People have been identifying world leaders as antichrists and setting a date for the end of the world throughout recent history. Alistair's birthday, May 24th, 2011, was supposed to be the end day time, according to one prophet that I had seen put billboards up around that time. And I remember thinking, oh no, my son is bringing on the Antichrist, okay? Uh, But it never happened. But the question is, why do preachers keep telling us that the primary message of books like this is that the end is coming near? Why do pastors do that? Well, in some reasons, and for some reasons, it's like a road trip with small children, right? Right as you pull out of the driveway, they ask this amazing question, Dad, are we there yet? And we annoyingly just say, yeah, 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 we're almost there, when we know, you know we're 400 miles away. Maybe that's us today, or, or, or we see you know, these tragic events of this war today. And it's scary. I'm not going to lie to you. It's kind of worrisome 
about what may happen in the near future. I know my son is also very scared about what World War III would look like. And I was like asking him, what's his biggest fear? And he's like, I, I don't want to get drafted. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's a long ways away. But, you know, we all have these fears, don't we not? And we worry about the ramifications of this. Is this the end? Is the end near? Well, we don't know. And Daniel 8 is here for us not to tell us that the end is near. Daniel 8 is to tell us and encourage us to face up to reality that either we may have a long way yet to go before the resolution of life's pains and, and injustices occur. And there's no promise from God that he would rapture us out of this world before our tribulations get too bad. There's no real promise by God in that endeavor. Even the prophet is explicitly told to seal up the vision in verse 26 as it refers to a distant time, not so much to keep it a secret, but to keep your faith regardless of the end date. That's the point. To keep your faith regardless of the end date. Yet... If the promised new world of Daniel 7, like we saw last week, may still be a long way away, in the interim, God's people still will need to keep their faith fresh over the long haul. Whether God comes now, or Christ comes now, or He comes in the long, distant future, it doesn't really matter. What really matters is to keep your faith fresh, regardless of that end date. So how do you persist in faith and obedience to God when you live under constant pressure, intense persecution, and a lot of things going on around us? It seems that there's no imminent end in sight, maybe. Or because of these events that have happened just this week, maybe we're constantly afraid that the imminent end is near. Well, we're going to look at two points here. We're going to look at two visions, if you will. And I don't know if you pictured these visions in your head as I read them to you, the ram and the goat and the little horn. But it, it's vivid, and it's, it's really, really vivid. But let me come to help you explain what is going on with these two visions. We have just two points. The first is the ram and the goat. We come to another vision of Daniel in the third year of Belshazzar's reign. And in this vision... Daniel finds himself in Susa the citadel in verse 2. And that's huge for us, okay? It is an actual city that Daniel's vision is in. And this location prepares us for the fact that this vision is going to be completely different from the vision that was found in the first vision in Daniel chapter 7 because there was no exact location in that vision. This last vision was in Daniel 7 was an undefined location beside the great sea. But in this chapter, we are given a very specific and easily identifiable historical figures and kingdoms. That's why the name of the location of the citadel was named. Okay? Now the first object that Daniel sees in this vision was a ram with two horns, one of which was longer than the other. So you can picture that in your head. And the ram 
It charged west, it charged north, and it charged south. And the key point is that no one could stand against this ram. But then, as the vision goes, a male goat appears from the west with a single conspicuous horn. And the goat engages the ram in battle, destroying the ram, shattering both of the horns, and trampling the ram to the ground. So you can picture that. Then the male goat grew in power, replacing the ram in greatness. And then at the pinnacle of the goat's power, the single horn was also shattered, and four others came to replace it, pointing in all four directions. So you see a fight between the ram and the goat, and then four horns, right, replacing that goat. Now here we see Daniel, he needed the angel to interpret the meaning of this vision for him. Because it's, what's going on? What's the point of these animals and their horns? Though later readers could have unpacked it for themselves with the benefit of historical hindsight, it was much more difficult for Daniel to see this vision and say, what is going on? Even as Daniel was having the vision, the angels began to discuss the fulfillment of what he was seeing and how important it was for him to understand the significance of the ram and the goat. And if you turn to verse 20, the angel, and I didn't, we didn't read verse 20, but that's the interpretation by the angel. In verse 20, the angel explicitly says this, that the ram with two horns is meadow Persia. Okay? And the kingdom of Medo Persia. An unequal alliance, that's why the horns are different sizes, in which the more powerful member, the larger horn, is Persia. And the male shaggy goat, in verse 21, the angel interprets as the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eye, right? That first king. So the angel interprets this vision for Daniel. Now, in retrospect, you and I can also identify the goat's large horn as Alexander the Great, who succeeded in toppling the mighty Persian Empire from its position of power. So that male shaggy goat from Greece, that's Alexander the Great. Alexander conquered virtually the whole of the known world by the age of 33. That's why he was called so great. And after which he died, leaving his empire to be divided by, get this, four generals, the four horns of the goat. And here then is the first part of the vision's message. Like the vision in Daniel chapter 7, the vision describes a series of kingdoms in the form of animals that exalt themselves, one kingdom after the other, aspiring to greatness, achieving that greatness, but then falling down, being shattered, being trampled on. The ram seems invincible until the goat arises, but then even the goat is swiftly destroyed. The first horn of the goat throws the ram to the ground and no one can rescue the ram from the horn's power, but at the height of his power, the large horn too is then shattered, Persia. 
So in other words, no matter how great and how menacing an empire might be, it is simply an actor in the play written by someone else. You see that? It plays out the role assigned to it by God, the writer, on the revolving stage of world history. And then, when its lines are over, it slinks back into its wings. You see, the rise and fall of these historical, real historical nations, predicted accurately centuries ahead of time by the Lord through his prophets, reminds us clearly, does it not, who is directing the course of history? Earthly thrones, dominions, come and go with a ceaseless round. But only the kingdom of God is forever. So now, what's the message of the vision of the ram and the goat? Well, here it is. The message of the ram and the goat is that this is great news to generations of the saints who suffer at the hands of earthly kingdoms. Whether the, their, the Babylonian kingdom, whether it's the Persian kingdom, whether it's the Greeks or persecutors today. It's great news. These empires that to human eyes look so powerful that seems to have no weaknesses were actually just mere sheep and goats whose destiny lay in the hands of the divine shepherd, the Lord himself. They weren't even the, the cosmically frightening monsters that we read about in da uh, Daniel chapter 7. They're just overgrown domestic animals. And like any good shepherd, okay, imagine that the Lord is easily able to judge mere sheep and, and mere goats who step out of line and to put them back in their place. This is not bleach, okay, in this chapter. This is just animals that a shepherd can just, hey, go this way. Now, the same lesson is valid for us as well. The monsters that fill our nightmares, depriving us of sleep, are most commonly not the rise and fall of world empires, but threats to our own present and, uh, or future safety and security. So let me give you an example. Perhaps your health is threatened by the discovery of a cancerous lump. Perhaps you dare to care, uh, you have to care daily for a loved one and you know how to cope with today, uh, but you don't know how to cope with today, let alone tomorrow, because of how much stress is upon you to take care of that loved one. Perhaps you wrestle with depression and despair to the point that you've contemplated suicide. Perhaps you're already experiencing intense pain and suffering from a sickness that's only getting worse. You see, let this vision of Daniel 8 cut your monsters down to size. These monsters that seek to hurt you and trample you are nothing more than just big sheep in the Lord's eyes. If the divine shepherd is with you, he will not let them trample you utterly into the dust. The menacing world that is out of your control is never beyond God's. 
And so the one who raises up world conquerors and then consigns them into ter- uh, to turn to the pages of the ancient history books is the same one who controls your own personal story as well. You need not fear. I love this quote uh, from Samuel Rutherford as I close this point. He says, duties are ours, but events are God's. And when our faith goes to meddle with events and to hold account upon God's providence and begins to say, how will you do this or that? We lose ground. We have nothing to do there. It is our part to let the Almighty exercise His own office and steer His own helm. There is nothing left for us but to see how we may be approved of Him and how we roll the weight of our weak souls upon Him who is God omnipotent. And when we thus say, miscarrieth, it shall be neither our sin nor our cross. If you belong to Jesus, what this vision is telling us in Daniel chapter 8, in the beginning, the vision of the goat and the ram, is that the world revolves in the hand of the one who cares for you far more deeply than you can imagine. And he can just treat them as sheep and goats. Not a problem. Secondly, well, we didn't read, uh, uh, we did, but we, we, we get into the next vision. And the ram and the goat are merely curtain raisers in, in, in Daniel's vision. They're not the main action, okay? Um, the main action, I don't know why I said it that way. They largely reiterate the lesson of Daniel 7, right? That God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. And so it continues in Daniel chapter 8 that, you know, God can handle this, right? And Daniel's second vision has more to communicate in verses 8 through 12. And after the one-horned goat's kingdom has split into four parts, okay, so after Alexander the Great's kingdom is broken into four, another little horn emerges from one of those kingdoms and expands his realm towards the south and the east towards the beautiful land Israel. Okay, so picture this. And in his aggression the little horn took on the heavenly realm as well as the earthly realm. So in visionary language, the horn fought against the stars, God's heavenly host as well as the people of God's land, and he experienced triumphs in both fronts. Now that's a little weird, isn't it? On the heavenly battlefront, he brought down some of the stars to the earth. Again, visionary language. The soldiers of God's heavenly host and reached up to make himself as great as the prince of the heavenly host, God himself. On the earthly side, the horn brought an end to the regular daily sacrifices in the temple and overthrew God's sanctuary. And because of rebellion... The saints and the regular uh, daily temple sacrifices were handed over to this little horn's power. Truth was overthrown and evil seemed to triumph. And yet, as his vision goes, the little horn too would be judged by God and his power would be brought to an end even if he had a little bit of victory. Now here, 
We move beyond wars and rumors of wars, beyond general trials and tribulations of life that mark out every era of our history to focus on one of the specific assaults of Satan against God's people. God is sovereign, again, as we know, over all events of, the world, of world history, but His greatest concern is the fate of His own people. You see, Alexander the Great, the GOAT, was one of the greatest military strategists, one of the pivotal men in world history. Yet in Daniel 8, Alexander the Great is just a mere footnote. Isn't that interesting? Meriting barely a mention before the vision moves on to the more important matter of this little horn and his assault on God's people, even on God himself. And once again, with the benefit of hindsight, you can actually identify who this little horn is. The little horn in Daniel chapter 8 is known as Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Look him up. He lived around 175 to 164 BC. And Epiphanes, which means God made perfect, or manifest, was king of the Seleucid Empire, one of the four kingdoms that emerged from Alexander the Great's former territory. And initially, he was not first in line for the throne, but he seized it from his nephew through intrigue and, and then enlarged his kingdom through substantial military success. Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes was a tyrant who tried to unify his kingdom by forcing all of his subjects to adopt Greek cultural and religious practices. He banned all circumcision, bringing to an end any type of sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem in 167 BC, and then deliberately, get this, defiled the temple by burning pig's flesh on the altar and placing an object sacred to Zeus on the Holy of Holies. Now, we've gone through Leviticus. You can imagine the sacrilege that went on with Antiochus Epiphanes. Pig's flesh and a Zeus memorial on the Holy of Holies. Man, you're going to die, right? <laughs> he also burned copies of the scriptures and slaughtered those who remained true to the faith in God, perfectly describing, uh, fit, fitting the, the description of this stern-faced king who was completely wicked in Daniel chapter 8. You see, the king was part of the fulfillment of the dream in verse 23 and verse 24. And these acts of gross sacrilege by Antiochus triggered a rebellion. This is a little history for you, okay? It triggered this rebellion on the part of faithful Jews who were led, and I don't know if you've heard of these people, by the revolt of the Maccabees. You ever heard of them? And after a lengthy struggle, their rebellion, the Maccabean rebellion, culminated in the Seleucid forces being driven out of Judah and the temple being cleansed and rededicated in 164 BC. 
Antiochus himself died in somewhat obscure circumstances during a campaign in the eastern part of his empire. But these events, what I'm trying to get at, of real history faithfully reflect the events described in Daniel chapter 8, reinforcing once again the message of God is control is in control of all history. Now, as I mention all this, Daniel 8 opens a window into an even bigger struggle, a picture of the struggle against the Antichrist. See, Antiochus was not simply at war against earthly saints, but the picture is, and the vision is, that he was at war with heaven as well. And we are told that he made himself as great as God and swept some of the stars from the sky. And this is a visionary way of describing the cosmic struggle that will come to the fore in Daniel chapter 10 when we get there. It's as if the curtain is being drawn back and behind Antiochus is this ominous power of the spiritual forces of darkness that are arrayed against our God. Spiritual forces that we cannot see with just our blind eye. And as we face a world in which the end may or may not be near, it is important for us to remember the spiritual dimension of this warfare that is ours. You see, when we fail to take that into account, we're unprepared for the intensity of our conflict. Sometimes we're isolated from the struggle by our comfortable circumstances, right? If we have a pleasant situation in life with a comfortable house, an attractive spouse, uh, beautiful children, a a fulfilling career, a a cush uh, retirement plan, you and I are unlikely to cry out, how long, O Lord? Right? We'd be quite happy for God to wait a little bit longer. Do not come back yet. When life is good, we forget to pray. We forget that we're wrestling with powers that are far more than merely human powers that we can never conquer on our own strength. And yet in our attempts to share the gospel with our neighbors and our community or to build godly marriages and and families in our church or to win the victory against our own sinful natures, we are always profoundly overmatched by the forces ranged against us cosmically and spiritually. You see, unless the Lord intervenes, we can never stand up against the darkness. And that's why we need to fight this war on our knees, in our prayers, in the way that we are, ought to be light to this dark world. You see, at the same time, however, the cosmic dimension of the warfare reminds us that we're not alone in our struggle. And if you do recognize that there are cosmic warfare, spiritual warfare stuff going on that we do not see, it is also a reminder that God is not from a distance, according to the great theologian Bette Midler, right? Um, You might be too old for that or too young for that. But Daniel 8 gives us exactly the opposite picture of our universe, okay? In Daniel's vision, God is not depicted as passively 
surveying the conflict from the comfort of heaven, laying on his bed with, you know, uh, grapes being fed to him, right, saying, oh, why can't they all just get along? That's not the picture of God. Rather, his forces are actively engaged in the same struggles that we have, fighting side by side with us. God is not smugly watching from a distance. He's involved in our daily warfare against evil right alongside us. Those who assault us are at the same time assaulting him, and he is fighting it with us. Yet if God is not remote from the struggle against evil, then this question should come along in logic conclusion. Well, how is it that the battle sometimes seems to be moving in a negative direction? If the almighty, all-powerful God who controls history, Pastor David, is for us, then why do we not march from victory to victory and always to victory? Why is the storm not stilled for us? How is the little horn able to rise to power and, and, and sweep some of the stars of heaven and oppress the saints of the Most High? How is this possible? Well, this question, too, has an answer. In Daniel chapter 8, the problem is not merely Satan's enmity, but rather it is that word transgression. Now follow me here. Is it because of the rebellion that the army of God's people and the daily sacrifices in the sanctuary were handed over into the power of the little horn? Now, whose transgression is in view is the question. Most commentators believe it's the little horn's sin and his transgression. But it actually makes far more sense to the rebellion of his own people that this transgression is being referred to as. The theme of the next chapter. It's not the little horn's sin. It is God's people's sin. And after all, the outcome of this uh, uh, rebellion is that the host and the sanctuary are given over by God to the power of the little horn due to their transgression. Now, it's possible that God can hand enemies over to his people uh, to show his glory, but he would hardly give his people and sanctuary over into his enemies' hands except on account of their own sin. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 45 to 48, and you'll see God's not going to hand his people over due to someone else's sin. And this was the case in Daniel's old, uh, own day. The exile was not the end of the cycle of sin and judgment for Israel. Even if this judgment is on Israel, and that's what I believe this word transgression means, it's because of Israel's sin that God handed the little horn over to them. And even if this judgment came upon Israel, the point of all of this is that evil will still not triumph forever. You see, at the end of our reading, in verse 15, he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, 
It recalls this kind of creation language. It's saying the little horn is seeking to achieve nothing less than the the dissolution of creation. But in that attempt, he will fail because the Lord has already set the number of days of his kingdom. Now, why 2,300 days? Why just short of seven years? It could be seen uh, as a full period of judgment. However, the number doesn't exactly fit any pairing of uh, events in the Maccabean period. And trust me, people have tried. They've tried to make that 2,300 days work exactly the way it does. And I don't think that's the point. It's not to make 2,300 days work in history exactly. All it is, is just a figurative number about the limited period of suffering of his people due to their sin. Now, uh, let me conclude with all this, okay, with this. We need to see how Daniel 8 gives you and me hope in the face of our worst failures and the assault of Satan. That's the point of Daniel 8. We need to see how Daniel 8 gives us hope. The church, you'll know, still struggles today because of their own unfaithfulness and because of the assaults of Satan. It is not a one-pronged attack. It is two-pronged. Our own unfaithfulness and Satan's assaults. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8-9 through 9 says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. You want to talk about depression? There it is. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So where's the hope of Daniel chapter 8? Can God really sanctify people like us? How can God's purposes save, uh, to save and sanctify in the face of man's continual rebellion? You see, Daniel 8 affirms God's victory even in the face of the coming darkness. That's what is going on. And if God's purposes are not thwarted by that period of rebellion and defilement, then they will certainly never be thwarted by our own personal experiences of unfaithfulness or persecution. You see, from our standpoint in redemptive history, we can see now the same lesson on an even larger scale. We can look beyond the darkness and restoration of the days of Antiochus to an even greater act of rebellion and defilement. From our point of history, we can look and say that there was an even worse defilement to come. You thought Antiochus was bad, defiling God's temple, burning pig's flesh in the temple, putting a a monument towards Greece on the Holy of Holies, burning scripture. You thought that was bad. But no one in that time laid hands on God himself, did they? But as we know in history, later on, It is God's own people who rejected the Messiah. 
Are you seeing this connection? The leaders of Israel chose to ally themselves with the forces of evil, crying, crucify him. That's a terrible abomination. The people of God put their hands on God himself to kill him. No wonder it was dark that day. And you think, oh, those are the Jewish dumb people of God and their rebellion and sin. Christians are no better. We too were once God's enemies by nature. All of us are rebels against God. And if left to ourselves, we too would cry, crucify him. We, like John chapter 3, verse 19, loved darkness. Yet the message of Daniel 8 is that even rebellion of ours, even when we in our sinful nature and a terrible abomination put our hands on him to kill him, our God, that still cannot thwart God's purposes. You see, at the cross, Satan did his worst. The cross is the place where God gave his final answer to our rebellion as well as Satan's. And at the cross, Jesus took upon himself the full weight of all of our transgressions and all of our rebellions. And the cross is the guarantee that God's plan will always prevail in the face of our weakness. You see, our path to heaven will often take us through the valley of very deep darkness. And sometimes it's because of our own sin that we fall into that darkness. And the hope of Daniel chapter 8 is that our God is greater. And he proved it to you that even though all of your hands and all of your sins were put on Christ, it did not stop God's purposes of saving sinners like you and me. Bring on monsters. Bring on goats. Bring on uh, rams. Bring on little horns. The message of Daniel 8 is not to worry about them. It is to say...